You are listening to The Pregnancy Podcast with Vanessa Merton. Hello, thank you for tuning into The Pregnancy Podcast. You can find the full article and resources that accompany this episode at pregnancypodcast.com forward slash sugar. I want to thank Zoller for their support of this episode. Through the end of the month of May, you can save 20% off the prenatal plus DHA, and you can get one month free if you want to leave a review on Amazon. And you can always find the current promo code for the vitamin at pregnancypodcast.com forward slash vitamin, and all the details for the promo this month are there. You should take advantage of this. This is such a fantastic deal for a two-month supply of my favorite vitamin. And the Zoller vitamin is my favorite because they use really high-quality ingredients. They pay attention to the details. They don't cut corners. They have things like the bioactive forms of B vitamins and omega-3s like DHA. This is my favorite vitamin. You know that I do my research. I've looked at a lot of different options out there, including some prescription prenatal vitamins. This is still my number one recommendation. To get the promo code to save 20%, details on how to get a month free, you want to go to pregnancypodcast.com forward slash vitamin. I also want to thank Blue Blocks for their support. You can save 15% off blue light blocking glasses with the promo code PREGNANCY. And your exposure to blue light is important because it can have a big impact on your fertility, your pregnancy, and just your health overall. And while there's a lot of things you can do to reduce the amount of blue light that you're exposed to after the sun sets, the easiest way to block out 100% of the blue light that negatively impacts your sleep is to wear blue light blocking glasses. And I love the ones from Blue Blocks because they are actually proven to block 100% of the blue and green light between 400 to 550 nanometers. And that's the range that you need to block in order to get good sleep. And sleep is so essential. It drives your circadian rhythms, which drive your hormones. And blue light exposure can affect hormones like estrogen, progesterone, and prolactin, which are really important for fertility and pregnancy. It's so easy to just put these glasses on for a few hours before bed, and you're going to positively affect your health and improve your sleep. You can save 15% off your Blue Blocks glasses with the promo code PREGNANCY. And to check those out, you want to visit PregnancyPodcast.com forward slash glasses. In this episode, we are talking about sugar. And this is not about shaming you into thinking that you are not allowed to consume any sugar during your pregnancy. This is giving you an overview of what sugar is, how your body processes it, how it can affect you and your baby when you're pregnant, so that you can make informed decisions about how much sugar you're eating. Sugar is a broad term for a lot of different molecules that make foods and drinks sweet. And there's two basic types. They are monosaccharides and disaccharides. I'm going to get a little sciencey for a minute here, but I promise the whole episode won't be this way. Monosaccharides are simple sugars. This includes fructose, galactose, and glucose. Fructose is a sugar that occurs in fruits and in some root vegetables like sweet potatoes or carrots. 
galactose is a component of lactose, which is the sugar in milk. And then plants and algae make glucose during photosynthesis. And most of the carbohydrates that we eat get converted into glucose during digestion. So the other types of sugars, disaccharides, are compound sugars. So these are the combination of two of the monosaccharide molecules. Disaccharides include lactose, maltose, and sucrose. Lactose, I mentioned, was the naturally occurring sugar found in milk. That's also very high in breast milk. And that's a combination of galactose and glucose, one of each molecule. Maltose is from grains, and that's the combination of two molecules of glucose. And then sucrose, that's what's found in sugarcane and beets. It also naturally occurs with fructose and glucose in fruits and in some root vegetables. And a molecule of sucrose is a molecule of glucose and a molecule of fructose. Okay, hopefully I didn't lose you with all of that. When we're talking about sugar, table sugar, the white stuff that we think of when we think about sugar, refers to sucrose. So this is a disaccharide, which is composed of 50% glucose and 50% fructose. In the United States, by law, sucrose is the only substance that can be called sugar on food labels. And in this episode, we're talking about sugar really in terms of all of the different mono and disaccharides that happen both naturally and that are added into processed foods. Today, we have a lot of different types of sugar available, and most of these are some combination of glucose and fructose. So just in addition to cane sugar, there's sugar from other sources like beets, dates, and coconuts. Processed foods commonly use high fructose corn syrup. This is made from hydrolyzed cornstarch that's been processed to make corn syrup. And then to make it high fructose corn syrup, they add enzymes that convert part of the glucose to fructose. So the result is a sweetener that has 55% fructose and 45% glucose. And now remember, it's really not that different from table sugar, because that's 50-50 between glucose and fructose. So high fructose corn syrup has more fructose, but not a lot more. And it's more common, especially in processed foods, because it's cheaper than sugar is. When you eat sugars, your body breaks them down into glucose and fructose. Those monosaccharides are processed a little bit differently. Your body uses glucose for energy. And when you consume glucose, it's going to be absorbed into your gastrointestinal tract and it enters your bloodstream. And when that happens, your pancreas produces a hormone called insulin. And this helps your muscles and fat and all your other cells absorb glucose for fuel. So when you eat, your body has an insulin response and this helps regulate the amount of sugar that's in your blood. And then any excess glucose is either stored as glycogen in your muscles or it's stored as lipids in fat tissue. Fructose is processed a little bit differently. This has to be processed by your liver and then it's converted either into glucose that your body is going to use for fuel or into fat that your body has to store. The problem is that overconsumption of sugars and especially fructose can lead to non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So this is a disease that's estimated to affect 20 to 30% of the population worldwide. That's a huge amount of people. 
And non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is basically when you have a buildup of fat in your liver that's not caused by overconsumption of alcohol, which has the same effects. When you're pregnant, your body naturally becomes more resistant to insulin. That means that you have more glucose in your blood. And since less of that's getting absorbed, more of it is going to reach your baby. And this process makes sense because your baby is using all of that additional glucose for fuel. Imagine that a growing baby needs a lot of energy, so they need that additional glucose. And for most moms who are expecting, this works just like it's supposed to. So even though your body is more resistant to the insulin, and even though you have higher levels of glucose in your blood, your pancreas reacts by producing more insulin. And overall, that really is still going to keep your blood sugar levels in check. But the problem comes in when your pancreas can't keep up with the high demand for additional insulin. And then more glucose builds up in your blood. And this is called hyperglycemia. Insulin doesn't cross the placenta, but the glucose does. So the result is that you get too much glucose that's not being absorbed and used as energy. And instead, that's going to your baby. Gestational diabetes is a type of diabetes that just occurs during pregnancy, and then it magically goes away after you have your baby. Thankfully, it's not permanent, but it can put you at a higher risk of developing type 2 diabetes later in life. There's a lot of evidence on the risks of gestational diabetes to both you and your baby. Some of the risks to your baby include macrosomia. This is a baby who weighs more than 9 pounds, 15 ounces, or 4,500 grams. And the problem with that is that it can increase injury to their shoulder during birth. That's called shoulder dystocia or create other birth injuries. As your baby's body is trying to deal with those high levels of glucose, their pancreas is going to respond by producing more insulin, and that can result in them having a lower blood glucose level at birth, and that can be associated with some breathing problems. Gestational diabetes can also put your baby at a higher risk for jaundice. It can increase their risk of being admitted to the NICU or the neonatal intensive care unit. Babies that are born with excess insulin are also at a higher risk for obesity and type 2 diabetes. They have a higher risk of stillbirth. And then there are risks to you. Some of those are preterm labor. Gestational diabetes also puts you at a higher risk for cesarean birth. It's going to raise your risk for hypertension and preeclampsia. And you're more likely to get gestational diabetes in a future pregnancy, if you have it now, and more likely to develop type 2 diabetes later in life. This is something that you want to avoid if possible. Rates of gestational diabetes have been slowly increasing in the United States, and now it affects close to 6% of pregnancies. And the rates vary a lot among different ethnicities. Among Asian women, it's 11.1%. Rates vary by weight. In women who are obese, it's 13.6%, and in women who are underweight, it's 2.9%. And I know that it doesn't affect everyone. So even if you do not get gestational diabetes, 
it's still important to pay attention to your sugar. We're going to talk more about that. And the testing will affect you because it's become standard procedure in the United States to test all pregnant women for gestational diabetes, even if you have no risk factors for it. When you're looking into the research on eating any kind of food, there are a lot of limitations because studies on long-term effects of consuming anything are complicated because there are just so many variables. So if you increase your consumption of one food, you're likely to decrease your consumption of something else. And in the long run, you don't know whether the change in a participant's health or the change in disease rates is related to eating more of one food or less of another. Plus, another challenge is that a lot of research on nutrition and diet relies on questionnaires that participants are self-reporting. And the problem with that is that they're typically not very accurate. For example, think about how many servings of green vegetables you've had in the last month. Chances are you're not going to nail that number exactly. So on top of all of these challenges to having an evidence-based approach to what is the right diet, there's no one size fits all. Everyone's different. We have different dietary needs. And that's all based on our genetic makeup, where we live, our levels of activity, our overall health. It's really a long list of things that go into what's going to be the right diet for you. So the bad news is I can't give you the perfect diet to follow, but I can very confidently tell you that the ideal diet is primarily healthy whole foods. And I say that a lot on this podcast. So let me explain what I mean. You want to focus on food that grows out of the ground or on a bush or a tree. If you're eating meats, you ideally are eating meats that are coming from pasture raised animals. Whole foods usually don't come in a box and they're not going to be processed with a lot of added ingredients. A huge problem with processed foods is that they often contain high amounts of sugar. And even with the limitations on what we can learn from dietary research, we do know that consuming a diet really high in sugar is not healthy. A few years ago, evidence came out showing that the sugar industry sponsored a research program way back in the 60s and 70s that cast doubt about the hazards of sugar while promoting fat as the dietary culprit in coronary heart disease. The biggest problem with that was that the sugar industry did not disclose its role in funding and directing this research. And this scandal was a big deal when it first came out. And it's just one example of how dollars are swaying dietary guidelines, especially in the United States. Over the years, we have steadily increased the amount of sugar in our diets. Data going back to the 1970s shows that the average American consumed about 37 grams of sugar per day. And now that number is up to 55 grams. And kids consume even more sugar. They eat an average of 73 grams of sugar per day. But let's put that into perspective. How much sugar is really too much? We do have a lot of data on the health effects of excess sugar consumption, and this has shaped some newer recommendations on how much sugar we should be eating. In a perfect world, we are eating healthy whole foods all the time with zero added sugars. But in reality, we all consume some sugar. So how much is too much? 
In the United States, there's no daily value for total sugar, but there is a daily value for added sugars. So the FDA recommendation is 50 grams or about 12.5 teaspoons per day, and that's based on a 2,000 calorie diet. This means that you're limiting your calories from added sugars to less than 10% of the total calories that you eat per day. So for someone eating a 2,000 calorie diet, that's about 200 calories for 50 grams of sugar per day. And the idea with that is that if you're consuming too much sugar, then it can be really challenging to meet your nutrient needs while you're staying within those calorie limits. So if you're eating more than 50 grams of sugar per day, you're probably going way above and beyond that 2,000 calorie recommendation. This is more or less in line with what the World Health Organization recommends. They recommend reducing the intake of free sugars to less than 10% of your total energy intake, and ideally below 5%, which goes quite a bit lower than what the United States says, right? That halves it. Free sugars are defined by monosaccharides and disaccharides that are added to foods and beverages and sugars that are naturally present in honey, syrups, fruit juices, and fruit juice concentrates. Back in 2016, the FDA revised its guidelines for sugar and made new requirements for how it's listed on the nutrition facts label. So now if you look at the label of something, you're going to see total sugars, which include anything that's naturally occurring and any added sugars. And then you're going to see a separate line for added sugars. This includes anything that was added during the processing. This also includes foods packaged as sweeteners, sugars from syrups and honey, and sugars from concentrated fruit or vegetable juices. So it's those added sugars don't include naturally occurring sugars that you find in milk or fruits or vegetables. The good news is, is that this newer labeling makes it a lot easier to get a real quick idea of how much sugar a product contains. According to a team of scientists from the University of California, San Francisco, there are 61 different names for sugar. That's a very long list of names of things to memorize if you're trying to just read the ingredients on something to look for sugar. It's going to be a lot easier to look at the total sugar content on the nutrition label and see the breakdown of total and added sugars. I mentioned that there's no way we're going to eliminate sugar entirely from your diet. And there are a lot of healthy whole foods that naturally contain sugar, but they also contain other essential nutrients like fiber, protein, vitamins, things like calcium. And if you eat an orange, you're going to be consuming between 10 to 13 grams of sugar on average, but you're also going to be getting a lot of fiber from that fruit. And that fiber is going to help prevent some of the sugar from being absorbed up to 30%. Fiber also creates a slower rise in your blood sugar. So on the other hand, instead of eating an orange, you could drink an eight ounce glass of orange juice, which is a pretty small glass of orange juice. I think when I have a glass of juice, it's probably more like 12 to 16 ounces. An eight ounce glass of juice has the sugar content of about two oranges but it also does not have most of the fiber. Because it's a liquid, you're likely going to consume it faster than if you were eating an orange. This means that your sugar is going to hit your bloodstream more quickly. And another benefit that you're missing out on drinking juice instead of actually eating the fruit 
is you're not going to feel as full after drinking a glass of orange juice as you would if you ate the fruit. The good news is there are a lot of very small things that you can do that are going to stack up to make a big change in how much sugar you are consuming. The first thing is you want to know how much sugar you're eating right now. You need to read labels and you need to keep track of what you eat. I know tracking your diet can be very cumbersome and you don't have to do this forever. It'd be a good experiment just to do this for a week. That's going to give you a good baseline of what you're eating now. And at the end of the week, going back and looking at exactly what you're eating can let you know where you need to make modifications. Over time, you're going to learn what foods you want to avoid. And when you find products that you like, that are healthy, that you feel good about eating, you can stop having to read labels constantly when you're grocery shopping. Another tool that you can use at home is a blood glucose monitor. This is a small device that's really inexpensive. And basically, you are going to prick your finger with a device that has a really tiny needle. And then you're going to pop a test strip into the glucose monitor and put a drop of blood on that test strip. And then it's going to tell you how much glucose is in your blood. You may have the option to test your blood glucose at home for maybe the course of a week or two in place of doing a glucose challenge screening test. Now, it is a lot more work to do that for a week or two. I've done it. It was a little bit cumbersome, but there are some benefits to it. The biggest is that monitoring your blood glucose at home is going to give you a much better idea of how different foods affect your blood glucose levels. That's going to help you modify your diet to eat healthier foods because you're going to see those immediate effects. If that's something that you think you want to try, bring it up with your doctor or midwife and see if it's an option to do that instead of the one hour glucose challenge screening. Unfortunately, there is a lot of sugar hidden in foods that you wouldn't expect to find it in. Just about any food that's processed is going to include some amount of sugar. Even my favorite organic whole grain bread that has tons of seeds and nuts and seems really healthy has five grams of sugar per slice. And that might not seem like a lot, but it adds up if you were keeping track of how much sugar you consume in a full day. Processed foods are a huge source of hidden sugar. And often foods that are labeled as fat-free tend to contain additional sugar because they're making up for that flavor that's lost in the fat. Some big sources of sugar are bread, yogurt, protein bars are huge, and cereal often contains a lot of sugar. And when you're looking at the amount of sugar in something, you also want to pay attention to the serving size. Because the serving size on the nutrition label of, say, a cereal box might be a lot smaller than the amount that you actually pour into a bowl. So be realistic about what's an actual serving size for you. A big key to reducing sugar is going to be finding alternatives. So if you have a sweet tooth after dinner, you're always going to be better off having a piece of fruit than having a cupcake. Maybe you can swap out your big bowl of ice cream for a piece of dark chocolate. Maybe you can replace your nightly dessert habit with something like a cup of tea or another ritual. At the start of this episode, I promised that I was not going to shame you into completely cutting sugar out of your diet altogether. We know that that's not possible. Pregnancy can be challenging. 
and you should be enjoying the things that you can. And if paying attention to every single thing that you eat, if keeping a food journal stresses you out, stop and don't do it. You should have the space to enjoy sweets and you should not feel guilty about it. You can do this in moderation and still maintain a healthy pregnancy. And moderation is going to be different for everyone. You know whether or not you're overdoing it on the sugar. No one eats a perfect diet. Please do not beat yourself up for having dessert or indulging yourself in some candy or whatever it is that satisfies your sweet tooth. You need to give yourself space to enjoy some foods that may not be healthy. You just don't want to be doing it all the time. If you have any questions about your diet or your sugar consumption, please bring them up with your doctor or midwife. This is especially important if you are at a higher risk for gestational diabetes. Depending on your risk factors and how you end up faring on a gestational diabetes screening test, your care provider may have more specific recommendations for sugar consumption, and those are important to pay attention to. To recap today's episode, we talked about sugar. We broke down what sugar is, talked primarily about glucose and fructose, how those are processed by your body, how your body processes sugars a little bit differently when you are pregnant, talked about gestational diabetes, what some of the risks of that are. We talked about some of the research on sugar and talked about food labels and how to understand and put into perspective the amount of sugar in the foods that you're eating and talked about some different things that you can do to minimize or reduce the amount of sugar in your diet. One thing that I did not bring up in this episode that I will be talking about next week is artificial sweeteners. So stay tuned for that. I want to thank you for tuning into the pregnancy podcast today. I hope that you find this episode helpful. As always, you can contact me, Vanessa, at pregnancypodcast.com. And you can find the full article and all the resources that accompany this episode at pregnancypodcast.com forward slash sugar. Thank you to Blue Blocks for their support of this episode. You can save 15% off blue light blocking glasses with the promo code PREGNANCY. And blue light's important because it can affect hormones like estrogen, progesterone, and prolactin, which are all very important for fertility and during pregnancy. To check out the glasses, go to pregnancypodcast.com forward slash glasses and save 15% with the promo code PREGNANCY. And thank you to Zoller for their support. The Zoller prenatal with DHA is by far my favorite prenatal vitamin. And I love it because they use really high quality ingredients. Right now you can save 20% and get a one month supply for free. For all of the details on that, you want to go to pregnancypodcast.com forward slash vitamins. <laughs>